please be seated. And you can look with me at Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, as we study verses 21 through 35 this morning, before we enjoy communion together on this second Sunday of Advent. This is a record of the presentation of our Lord Jesus at the temple, something that would happen or be an experience for every child that was born, every male child that was born in the family. And we see the Lord Jesus presented according to the law for circumcision. And then we see him received by a man named Simeon. We'll spend the bulk of our time in that second category this morning as we look at Simeon's presence Simeon's beautiful prayer, and then finally, Simeon's prophecy. Before we do that, though, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together through prayer. Lord, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we desire to see Jesus and him only. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would Enlighten our minds, renew our hearts, and for some of us, open our hearts for the first time that we might truly experience the advent of our Lord Jesus. Bless us now, Lord, as we proceed in these moments, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a couple of ancillary things I'd like to mention before we get to the thrust or the heart of the study. I want you to notice, first of all, our Savior's name. Look at verse 21. Luke seems to go to great measure to emphasize his name as Jesus. When the eight days were completed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus. And Luke reminds us the name given by the angels before he was conceived in the womb. You know, Jesus means Savior. It comes from a Hebrew word, Yeshua, or the name Joshua. And the essence of it is the one who identifies with me in my need. Isn't that beautiful? You know, Jesus came to be a savior, but he came for other reasons too. He became the prophet, the priest, the king that God had always desired. The perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. But of all the names that could have been given to the eternal son of God, he received the name Jesus, savior. Because that's what he came primarily to do, to seek and to save that which is lost. If you ask many people who Jesus is or was on the street, they'll say he was a great ethical teacher. Or he was a miracle worker. Or he was the greatest humanitarian that ever lived. But the real question before us is, do we know him as Savior? And we need to present that to those that we talk to about Jesus because he must be more than a great prophet. He must be more than a miracle worker. He came to be your savior. And that is to acknowledge him by faith and before that to acknowledge that I have sin and I need a savior. Our savior's name. Secondly, notice our savior's obedience in verses 21 through 23. He submitted to circumcision, which every Jewish male 
had to be circumcised in order to fulfill the law. He was fulfilling it and under the law. He had to fulfill all the law's requirements. Without circumcision, he could not do that. And without circumcision, he would not be the legitimate son of David and the seed of Abraham. And so Christ, here in the very beginning, submitted himself to absolute, perfect, personal obedience to the law of God. And I remind you, he would do that for the remainder of his time on earth, that he would obey every single thing in connection to the law, which is something you and I could never ever do. Not for a moment. Jesus did it for the entire 33 years that he was on the earth. Our Savior's name, our Savior's obedience, and then our Savior's poverty. Look at verse 24. This is kind of hidden, but it's made more manifestly clear in other places in Scripture. They came according to the law, and they offered a sacrifice according to what was in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 12, verses 6 through 8, and you read about this particular ordinance or rite, the scripture is very clear that you're supposed to bring to the tent of meeting a lamb one year old for the burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. And Leviticus 12, 6 through 8 goes on to say, And if she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeon offering and the other for the sin offering. Mary and Joseph were a poor family. They could not afford the primary sacrifice. And so they brought the sacrifice that was characteristic of those who had reduced circumstances, those who were poor. J.B. Lightfoot calls this, quote, the offering of the poor, which if a rich man offered, he did not do his duty. It's a reminder to us that Jesus came and lived in poverty. Jesus is the one who says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was born in a cow stable. He lived all of his life without a home. And he bled and died on Calvary. And it's a reminder to us that Jesus came for those who are spiritually bankrupt. Those who see their need. And he made it clear in other places that money often and affluence uh, most often get in the way of that. Now, we're not to live and desire poverty, literally. But what the Bible teaches is that we must see the poverty of our own soul. And we must not allow money or affluence or anything else to get in the way of us seeing that reality about our own hearts. That we cannot stand before a holy God. And that's why the Bible says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Because the humble man or woman is able to look at their own lives and say, I need a savior. I'm bankrupt spiritually. Well, that is our Lord's name and obedience and poverty. Now to the thrust of the message. I want you to notice, first of all, Simeon's presence. Look at verses 25 through 27 with me. And by presence, I don't mean his physical presence, but his presence of mind, if you will, as he is a powerful and compelling man of faith. 
You know, there are some Christians that I admire, as one theologian has said. There are other Christians that make me thirsty. And when I read this brief description of this man, Simeon, in these verses, I become thirsty to know Simeon's God. I become hungry to know Simeon's God. Look at the description of him. In verse 25, it's rich. We're told that he was a righteous and devout man. In the middle of 25, he was looking for the consolation of Israel. He was looking for God to bring comfort and salvation. And at the end of verse 25, the Holy Spirit was upon him. When you go on to verse 26, he believed God's word. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord made his word and his promise known to Simeon. And then in verse 27, he sought to walk In the power of the Spirit, the Bible says he came in the Spirit into the temple. All these things lead me to admire this man and to make me thirsty. And while I was studying this past week, I asked the question, what makes Simeon a righteous and devout man? You know, often we have role models, I suppose. That's true in sports. It's true... Uh, in schools and that sort of thing. What about spiritually? Often we look at others who are righteous and devout, and we wish we could be like them. And so perhaps we practice certain disciplines, and we try harder. But what I want you to notice about this, what is fascinating about this passage, is that if you look at it backward, this section, you'll see the reason for the fact that this man is righteous and devout. Simeon is led to God's temple by God's spirit. Very basic. Simeon believes in God's word. Simeon is submissive to God's spirit. And Simeon is focused and determined to find God's Messiah. And why is that? It's all because of the grace of God. All because of the grace of God. Simeon is a righteous and devout man, not because he pulls himself up by his own bootstraps. and Not because he's more righteous than other people. I think of Jonathan Wesley, who was part of the Oxford Holy Club. And he lived his life over and over again, praying, praying for hours in the morning, seeking to go to every service he could go to and doing anything and everything else in order to make himself righteous before a holy God until he discovered the power of the gospel. That no matter what he did, he could never live up to God's righteous standard of holiness and perfection. And that's why God sent his only begotten son. And why Jesus was clothed in human flesh. In order to live his entire life under the law of God and keep it. And then to lay his life down and spill his sinless blood to make atonement and payment for all of our sins. No, you can't work your way to heaven, and no one is ever good enough. When you realize your need for a Savior, you realize it's all by God's grace. Simeon is the man that he is because of the grace and mercy of Almighty God. It's no wonder in verse 33 it says, His father and his mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. I love that verse, but I'm quite amazed by this man's perception, this man's insight. You know, this is a great word for those of us who are seniors in Christ's church. 
Often we think as we get older in our 70s and 80s, we don't serve anymore. We sort of retire. You know, the only people who are supposed to retire, I think, according to the Bible, was the priests. I believe at age 55. <laughs> I've already missed that. No. no, saints are to continue serving. They have a lot to offer. We'll see that in Anna. Both Simeon and Anna are senior citizens. And yet they are towering figures of spirituality. They love the Lord and they follow in his steps and they're led and controlled by his spirit. And they devote their lives to his service, even as they reach old age. What a blessing to see in these people. Well, that is Simeon's presence. And you know, the presence of Christ in him is what gives him such a remarkable presence as a devoted man of God. Is that true of us? Notice, secondly, Simeon's prayer, quickly in verses 28 through 33. I want you to see some features of this prayer. Number one, Simeon is not afraid of death. Look at verses 28 and 29. And he took him in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace or to die according to thy word. You know, the world does everything it can to ignore to dismiss and to hold off death. I was amazed the other night when I was watching a, a football game. At the halftime show, there was Dolly Parton uh, dressed in a uh, Dallas Cowboy cheerleader outfit. And I thought, what is this 77-year-old woman doing in this outfit on this stage? There's a time that you reach a point where you don't do that sort of thing. <laughs> Common sense ought to tell you, but that's the way the world operates. The world doesn't want to get old. The world wants to hold off death. It's a scary thing. But it doesn't have to be for believers. Believers can grow old in grace. We believers, Christians, know, we know that we need not fear death. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But the basis of our not fearing death must be more than theoretical. It must be experimental and practical. What do I mean by that? Well, we don't fear death because we're called to die all the time. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And his disciples knew exactly what he meant when he said that. He was saying this is not going to be a life of ease and comfort and pleasure. It's going to be dominated by death, death to sin, death to yourself, death to this world. Because it's only through death that you are born into eternal life. That's a frightening thing. Jesus also said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What a magnificent statement. And it's so contrary to the way the world operates. The world operates on a fiction that I'm going to somehow live forever. Or that while during my lifetime, the scientists and the physicians will come up with something to make me immortal. And they believe that sort of fantasy and nonsense. Not the Christian. The Apostle Paul said, I die daily. And in 2 Corinthians, he made that famous uh, statement, death works in us so that life works in you. 
Corinthians. The secret to the Christian life is death. For the Christian, death is no stranger. It's a daily event and experience. Again, dying to self, dying to sin, dying to the world. This is why Simeon has no fear of death. He knows he's already dead in a sense. He's dead to his own will. He's dead to the direction that he wants to go. He is submissive with Christ. And according to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, he is already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You see, for the Christian believing the word of God, the only thing that really separates us from the actual presence of God physically is the experience of death. It's sort of a tram. You know how you go to the airport and get on the tram from the terminal to go out to the airplane? That's essentially what death is. We're going to fly and we're going to go to be with Christ, but we go through that experience of death. But the Christian doesn't have to be afraid of that because daily they're dying and daily they're yielding up their members. And that is a magnificent teaching of sacred scripture. We don't want to die. We want what we want. We want to be comfortable. We want to be successful. We want to be affluent. Christ calls us to come and die. But when we go and we die, we find out what real life is all about. Because you see, eternal redemption could not have been reached unless Christ died. And the devil tempted him over and over to abort his mission. Jesus, go lip off the temple. There'll be no pain, no cross, no rejection. Jesus, I'll give you all the kings of the world if you'll just bow down and uh, worship me for a few moments. There's no need for the cross. But Jesus knew that without a cross, without death, burial, and resurrection, all would be lost. Simeon is not afraid of death. Because he's living that daily. He's dying to himself and he is alive in Christ. Let me challenge you with that as Christians. There are so many churches out there that don't teach that. Even Christian churches. Evangelical churches. Where they go and they hear the word perhaps read. But then they hear a message on being the best you. On developing your life and experiencing heaven right now. That is not the religion of Jesus Christ. Christ says, come and die, and you'll find out what true life is all about. As I set you free from your chains, and you begin to serve the body of Christ, because you've truly been liberated from living for this world. Well, I must hurry on. Simeon is not afraid of death. Secondly, Simeon's salvation is in Christ alone. Look at verses 30. For my eyes have seen the salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Acts chapter 4, Peter said, There is no other name in heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This idea that all roads lead to heaven is nonsense. And part of our job as Christians, even though it may be very painful, is to make that clear to people we come in contact No, all roads don't lead to heaven. That is the perfect thing to believe in order to end up in hell. Jesus said, I am the only way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Simeon's salvation is in Christ alone. Thirdly, Simeon sees Christ as the light of the world. Look at what he says in verses 31 and 32. Which thou hast prepared in the presence of all the peoples. This is not done in secret. A light of revelation to the Gentiles. There's an invitation here and extends to all without exception. The ministry of God's revelation to Gentiles was revolutionary. And that's why the Bible calls it such a mystery all the time. And it points to, I think, the greater mystery that God would save a sinner like me, like you. Sometimes we think we're so far from the Lord that he would not bother with us. But that's not true. That's why Christ was manifested to all the peoples. That's why the gospel will be preached to all nations before the end comes. Because the Lord is making it clear that he came not just for Israelites, but for those who are Israelites indeed. For those who are humble and see their need, no matter who they are, no matter what their background, no matter what condition they're living in right now. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Simeon sees Christ as the light of the world. Notice he also sees Christ as the one who restores the glory of God in sinners. Look at 32b. He's the light of revelation of the Gentiles, and he's the glory of thy people Israel. God doesn't share his glory in the fullest sense with anyone. But human beings have a glory. They have a sense of dignity because we're made in the image of God. Sadly, this was lost because of human sin. We lost our sense of God's glory and we lost our sense of dignity as a result of sin. Romans 1, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image and form of a corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Paul says, we exchange God's glory for idols, plain and simple. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and therefore fall short of the glory of God. Nevertheless, as part of the body of Christ, we share in Christ's glory. Christ, by his death and resurrection, saves sinners. And you know, a great part of our salvation is that the glory of God is restored and shown in us. I love the words of Jesus himself in John 17, 22. And the glory which thou, the Father, has given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Romans 8, 21, Paul says the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. See, what he's saying is when you come to know Jesus Christ, you can look in a mirror and you can stop hating that person that you see or being so upset with it because you begin to see Jesus himself. And you're looking into the face of the living Christ and it resembles you. Because you're in the glory of God. It's why Peter says, we've been able to partake in the divine nature. That doesn't mean what some people teach, that we become God. No way. 
What it means is we discover our true nature as sons and daughters of God made in his image and now restored. And we're part of the body of Christ. Has the glory of God been smeared in your life? Perhaps your dignity has been lost. You wonder who you are. What is my identity? Why am I here? There are answers in Jesus Christ. And it's so beautiful to have your glory and your dignity restored because of our Savior. Well, quickly and finally, Simeon's prophecy. There's so much to study here. Look at verses 34 and 35. He prays this beautiful prayer, and then he looks up and he speaks to the Holy Family. And after praying, Simeon speaks prophetically about the impact of this child. Notice a couple of things with me. Number one, this child will determine the eternal destiny of all human beings. Look at the first part of verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel. That's true of Israelites, but it's also true of every person in the world. It reminds us that there is no neutrality with Jesus. He alone has been appointed to judge the living and the dead. And Christ will serve either as your judge to condemn you or as your savior to welcome you. But he will not fill a third category. You grow up in a home that is Christian, but you don't embrace Christ yourself. That's a third category. Or perhaps you pride yourself on all the things that you do in the body of Christ. That is a third category. You've got to know him as Savior, your personal Savior from sin. And when you know him that way, he'll welcome you. You don't have to fear death. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. He's looking forward to be with you in person. A second thing, this child will endure great opposition. Look at 34b. The king of kings and lord of lords will take his throne via suffering. Simeon says, for a sign to be opposed. And the way of the cross certainly involved opposition. There is no path to victory, though, without it. As was true for Jesus, so it's true for us. A third thing, Mary will suffer as Jesus' life and mission unfolds. Look at 35a. And he says to Mary, a sword will pierce even your own soul. It reminds us that although Mary was the mother of the incarnate God, she was also a vulnerable sinner like everyone else. Simeon gave Mary some sober words to prepare her for what was coming. So she would search her own heart and see Jesus primarily as her Savior more than her Son. We see this through the Gospels early on. The wedding of Cana. Jesus' mother Mary comes to him and says, they have no wine, they run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman, what have I to do with thee? The relationship is changing. Another occasion, Jesus' mother and brothers were standing outside to see him. Basically to take custody over him because everyone thought he was out of his mind. And Jesus said, who is my mother and brothers? And he said, behold, those who hear my word and follow me, these are my mother and sister brother. God used Mary to be the birth mother of Jesus, but Mary, despite her unique position, was a sinner in need of salvation. She would have to negotiate the sorrow of losing a son in order to gain 
everlasting life. And losing, ladies and gentlemen, is something that we all must negotiate. Losing something that is important to us or precious to us. I read The Great Divorce the other day. Probably many of you have read that many years ago. It's a story about those in hell taking a bus trip to heaven. And one by one they realize, I don't like it here. They're too comfortable. They're too intertwined with the things that they were intertwined with on the earth. And one of them is a character, a woman, and she lost a beloved son. The son died before she did. And she's bitter and she's upset and she wants this son back more than anything else. And the angel who speaks to her, the ghost, basically tries to communicate with her, you've got to let go of this. Your love for this child is not what you think it is. It's not the highest form of love. And you've got to let go. You've got to lose this particular relationship in the manner that you hold it. And love the one who you must truly love and supremely love, the Lord Jesus. Sadly, the woman doesn't do it. She thinks her love, a mother's love for her son, is the highest love on earth. She never discovered the love of the eternal Son of God for sinners. Mary is told here, you're going to have a sword pierce your own soul. You're going to watch your son die. And you're going to have to not become bitter, but look at him and realize he is my Savior. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. I don't just have this physical, earthly relationship with him. I have an eternal relationship with him. God's plan for his life goes way beyond what my expectations might be. What do you need to lose today? Perhaps the Lord puts on your heart, you need to lose something in order to walk through the narrow gate. Sometimes it's a habit. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a factor of identity. We cling so hard. And the Lord says, let go. Mary will suffer as Jesus' life and mission unfolds. A final thing, this child will expose the thoughts and the hearts of men and women. Look at the last phrase of verse 35. To the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. As the author of Hebrews says, all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with who we have to do. The Holy Spirit may be revealing thoughts of your heart right now. He does that, you know. He moves on hearts and he says, those words are for you. You need a Savior. You need to trust the Lord Jesus. And love me and come into my kingdom because of my great love for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful man a towering figure in church history, Lord, and in biblical history. We pray that we would learn much from him and from this account in your holy, infallible, and errant word. And so, Lord, bless us to that end now as we come to the table and seek to commune richly and spiritually with you through the Lord's table. Bless us, Lord, we pray in these sacred moments now. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take our